Would you pray with me? Most gracious God, your story is such a counterintuitive one. This creator with all power and might chooses to submit to failure and death. Chooses to save us by appearing not even to be able to save yourself. What an amazing, counterintuitive story. We thank you for it, God, because this story, this story that says we conquer not with power and might, but with love, this is the story the world needs. Thank you, God, for that story. Today, Lord, as we talk about Jesus as the King of Kings, I pray that you would pour upon me the gift of preaching, that my very frail and broken and human words might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, become your living word, uniquely crafted for each and every one of our hearts. We pray it with great confidence, for we pray it in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus. Amen. Today's the final week in Lent. We begin Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. And Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem with all its pomp and circumstance and controversy begins the final chapter of the greatest story ever told. And today, this day, where Jesus is proclaimed king as the crowds quote the Messianic Psalm 118 with cries of Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us now. This day is also Jesus' one and only day where he is publicly acknowledged for who he truly is, the Lord God's Messiah, God's King whom God has sent to save the world. Yet, in reality, he's even more. Jesus is not just King, he is King of Kings. Regarding our series on the I Am statements, to clarify, Jesus never said, I am the King of Kings. And yet, even so, that's exactly what today's uh, story tells us, right? That he truly is God's king of kings. But that's what scripture certainly demonstrates, right? But even so, Jesus deliberately keeps this reality on the down low. In the Gospel of Matthew, it proclaims that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy of Zechariah. As he enters gently riding on a donkey. In so doing, Jesus looks nothing like the King of Kings. As he processes into Jerusalem, there's no accompanying army, no white stallion, no evidence or signs of power and might. There's only a crowd of his followers saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet, make no mistake, There is a superman underneath all this Clark Kent-like appearance. For Revelation 19 proclaims Jesus King of Kings in this way. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. (laughs) What a contrast to today's proceedings. But this is who Jesus truly is. He is a supernatural being who is fully human and fully God. And had it been God's will that day, Jesus could have stepped into that proverbial phone booth and come out wreaking havoc and destruction. Just imagine, with eyes of flaming fire, he could have commanded a sharp sword to come out, flying out of his mouth and subdued the nations, starting with Pilate in that crowd. King of kings and Lord of lords indeed. Yet that's definitely not what happened. Instead, in a counterintuitive move, Jesus remains in Clark Kent mode. And that results in things going downhill quickly after today's triumphal entry. Within a week, the religious leaders of the day will have arrested Jesus and presented him to Pilate as a political threat to Caesar, arguing Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. Of course, what's ironic is the church leaders that day, unbeknownst to them, well, they were right. As king of kings, this fire in his eyes, sword in his mouth, Jesus is a direct threat to the authority of every ruler in every nation. Yet, even though this is true, Jesus does not fight back. He remains gentle and lowly, absorbing everything that is thrown at him. This is what we will commemorate on Good Friday. The truth that in a mind-bending conclusion, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, King of Kings, Savior of the world, will unceremoniously be given the death sentence. Doesn't this feel like an April Fool's moment? Don't you expect Jesus to cry, April Fool's, and suddenly go all Superman on these people? Well, it is an April Fool's kind of moment, but not in the way one might think. For in the end, God fools everyone, even those who knew Jesus best. How? By rescuing humanity redeeming us from the dominion of darkness, not by might and not by power, but through what looks like Jesus' complete failure. On Friday night, it doesn't look like Jesus saves anyone, even himself. For by the end of the week, there was nothing Messiah-like about him. He was beaten, bloodied, taunted, and unceremoniously suffocated to death on a cross. Yet it was then, as he literally absorbed all the evil and sin of the world that they could throw at him, as he yielded to it and was utterly defeated by it, even to the point of death, that we were rescued from our sin. So here's the question. 
in saving the world from the dominion of darkness, why didn't Jesus jump into the proverbial phone booth and come out in King of Kings mode? Well, love appears to be the restraining factor that is at the very heart of God's plan of salvation. He role modeled for humanity that when love is in charge, things look different. It should be said that God certainly had the right to judge the world as king of kings and to take over by force. And yet, as Karl Barth writes, at the cross, God determined that his judgment should submit to his mercy. God determined at the cross that his judgment, which was rightfully willing and able, he was rightfully willing and able to give, should submit to his mercy. What would it have been like if it had gone the other way around? Having his mercy submit to his justice. How would humanity have fared if we had gotten what we actually deserved? Once God's judgment submits to his mercy, it follows that our Savior would, in love, choose to become a lay-down-his-life-for-his-people kind of king. For that is what love requires. And so we have a king who is driven by love and is creating a kingdom of love. And what is this kingdom of love like? Revelation proclaims in Revelation 21 that when the new heaven and the new earth become reality, that God is making all things new. What kind of new? One of my favorite worship songs right now is called Behold by Taylor Leonhardt. I had the chance to meet her this past week at a concert, and I asked about this song, and she said the whole song was inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien's line from the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Is everything sad going to become untrue? Because of Jesus' victory through failure, all things will be made new. And our new reality will include everything sad becoming untrue. Taylor's lyrics beautifully embody all the sadnesses that Scripture proclaims will come untrue. The empty filled, the wounded healed. The broken back together. The poor are blessed. The weary rest. We will dance forever. The blinded see. The chained are free. The doubtful now believer. The outcast known. The orphan home. You are my redeemer. This is what Christ accomplished through his apparent failure of love on the cross. How does it come about? The chorus says, Behold, behold what love can do. Behold, he is making all things new. 
This is the impact, the transformation, the metamorphosis that takes place within our lived experience when consuming power is finally dead and love reigns. Think about a world where this is our reality. We have to imagine it, don't we? Because we know right now this is not what we experience. But while we wait for that day, in the meantime, we are called by God to love as Jesus loves. In John 15, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And so we've just been walking through what Jesus' love toward us looked like, the depths that he would go And so we are called now by God as the church to embody this all things new world in the now, as impossible as that is. Jesus talked in the scripture today about how much better it is when one seed dies because it will produce many seeds. And so like Jesus, as his body, we are called to lay down our lives for others as he did. We are the many seeds That God is called to be present in the world and to love like Jesus loved. Like Jesus, we are to ensure that our judgment submits to mercy. What would happen in our world if the billion Christians on this planet made sure their judgment submits to mercy? When we do, it produces the same fruit in our relationships with one another that it did in our relationship with God. I want you to think about that. What happened in our relationship with God as a result of the way Jesus loved us? It transformed us. It renewed us. We were reconciled with God. Our sins are forgiven. Mercy is shown. Love reigns. That's what God desires in our relationships with one another as well. So we must keep this vision of what it means that everything sad becomes untrue front and center. We must keep front and center this vision of everything sad becomes untrue. That is where we are all headed. And that is what we want to live into, even in a world that doesn't show any of that to us right now. For embodying that in our lives each day is what it means to be the church in the world. This is God's plan A for the world until Jesus returns as King of Kings. And so today, as we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as we imagine the prophetic cries of Hosanna, Lord, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's important for us not to skip from Palm Sunday to Easter without walking through the valley of the shadow of death of Good Friday. And so I encourage you this week that you would make plans to be there on that part of Jesus' journey as well. And this table reminds us firsthand of the King of Kings' willingness not to fight back. That's what this table represents. It represents firsthand the King of Kings' willingness not to engage his power against the forces of darkness allied against him. 
that he was willing to give up everything and to suffer greatly for the sake of saving his people by love rather than by might. This is what grace is. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is the Lord's table. And anyone who professes Jesus as Savior and Lord is welcome today to partake in this supper. At the same time, let me say, if you don't feel ready, if you don't feel uh, right or wanting to participate, that's also fine. That's between you and the Lord as well. And so as we take communion this morning, in the bread uh, tray there is an inner cup that has gluten-free bread. In the wine uh, and juice tray, the outer circle is wine and the inner circles are grape juice. So please take note of that. Would you pray with me? Most gracious God, we are so grateful that you chose for judgment to submit to your mercy. That is what this table represents. Your grace writ large in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we have hearts of gratitude toward you today. And thank you, Lord, that you let love rule you in how you treat us. And so we ask, Lord, now that in the power of your Spirit, that your Spirit would come upon these very common elements so that we might experience Christ's presence real and true today, that our faith might be encouraged, that our connection to you and to one another might be strengthened, all by the grace and presence of Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Anytime you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Anytime you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul adds that anytime we eat this bread or we drink this cup, we remember the risen Lord's death until he comes again. The feast of God for the people of God. Love, grace, judgment submitting to mercy. Would the elders please come forward?